Well, we're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, as we work our way through the book of Matthew this morning. And we're looking at Christ's temptation in the desert. And our passage this morning verifies to us that the Bible is a supernatural book. It opens windows of truth about the unseen supernatural world that's going on all around us. It speaks authoritatively that God created the world and everything in it. It speaks to extraordinary miracles that are above the laws of nature. It speaks authoritatively and factually about the spirit world of cherubims and seraphims and angels that God created. And it speaks about how loyal those spirits were to God and to his will. But the word of God also reveals that in this spiritual world, there was one beautiful light-bearing cherub named Lucifer. Lucifer rebelled against the Creator and has become the chief antagonist toward God and toward man. And we're introduced to him this morning in the passage we're looking at and his new names, the devil, the tempter, and Satan. And as Christians, we believe that every word in the original manuscripts is authored by God and is truthful and historically accurate in its entirety, including when it makes reference to things in the supernatural world. We don't pick and choose verses that we think sound more reasonable or truthful than other verses. We don't incorporate our own rationale or logic as the basis for determining the believability of any particular part of Scripture. And so we base the believability of everything in the Scripture on the fact that God is the author of Scripture. That's the only basis upon which we believe all of the scriptures. And so we don't hold Jesus' words as any more important or significant than any other words in the Bible, including the words that are assigned to the devil. I've been reading a great book by Michael Heiser called The Bible Unfiltered, Approaching Scripture on Its Own Terms. And he asks an important question when we say we believe the Bible is inspired and authoritative, do we mean I believe the same thing about the supernatural world that biblical characters and writers believed about it? Put negatively, he said, how much of what biblical characters and writers believed about the supernatural world and said were part of the supernatural world do I feel comfortable dismissing as a modern person? So depending on how we answer those questions, that reveals a lot about how serious we are when we say, I believe the Bible. And so with that in mind, as we consider this passage this morning, let's come at it asking questions about the supernatural world it describes. Thinking about context and forming judgments about the statements that are made. And looking for more information so we can get as close to understanding the context as we can. And so for me, behind this passage this morning, I'm asking the question, what is really going on here in this passage? What is the reason behind this supernatural encounter in the desert between the devil and Jesus? So let me read the scriptures for you in Matthew 4. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So let's go back to the first verse in one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so we want to know what's really going on in this passage this morning. What's the reason behind this supernatural encounter in the desert? So let's take a look at the bigger context. At the end of the previous chapter, we're told that the heavenly selected baptized incarnate son Jesus is standing in the Jordan River after being baptized by this guy who's probably got remnants of locust wings and chunks of honey in his beard where the Holy Spirit visibly descended like a dove upon Jesus. And Travis said last week that the Spirit alighted upon him, signifying and identifying Jesus as the Anointed One. And it was when John saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus that he testified that this is the Son of God. But I also believe that the Holy Spirit alighted specifically upon Jesus' human nature, empowering his human nature to withstand the temptation he was about to undergo, as well as to identify that Jesus is God's Messiah. And suddenly there is a voice from heaven, not a human voice, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then soon after that event, God's beloved son Jesus, anxious to always be doing nothing but God's will, endures willfully to be conducted into the desert by the Holy Spirit. And he's hanging out there for a month and ten days. And according to Luke, he didn't eat or drink anything whatsoever during that time. And he's hungry. God's beloved Son, the prophesied righteous, long-expected Messiah, who has just been anointed by the Spirit to establish God's spiritual and eternal kingdom as the Messiah, 
is led by the Spirit into the desert. Mark's gospel says the Spirit was a little bit more forceful about it. Mark says that he was driven out into the desert. And lo and behold, there's a being there called the tempter. We'll look a little bit more deeply as to who that is shortly. When we were gathering as pastors and elders to consider how to approach this passage, we were asking, how much does the devil know about Jesus at this point? And it's hard to know. It's hard to tell. But as I reason through this passage, I think that the Spirit of God came upon Jesus' human nature to empower his humanity to withstand the temptation that the devil was bringing to the man he saw wandering around in the desert. Because of the way God recorded the wording in the devil's temptation, it's possible that the devil is pretending that he doesn't know who this is yet. He's using this approach because he wants to find out for sure who this is. He had heard a voice saying, this is my son, and so the devil might be a little perplexed. And he wants to find out, what kind of a son is this? Is he the son of God from eternity, who has come to supernaturally destroy the works of the devil? Or is he just an ordinary son of God, who he could easily tempt and persuade to doubt and then disobey God like he did Adam and Eve in the garden? Jesus' response to the first temptation is, as a man like any other man. That's why he says, not by bread alone shall man live. He doesn't say the Son of God doesn't live by bread alone. He's responding as a man in his humanity to the devil's temptation. So here's Jesus all alone by himself in the middle of nowhere. Mark says he was actually with the wild beasts. And the tempter's looking for just the right moment to approach him in his weakened state of hunger, to engage him in some kind of supernatural conflict aimed at discovering what kind of a son is this. And then the text says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we're trying to figure out how much the devil knows, right? Does the devil think he just randomly happened upon this guy in the desert? Does he realize that God is sovereignly orchestrating this supernatural meeting to accomplish God's own purpose? What was the devil thinking when he saw this prophet out there witnessing to masses of people to repent of their sins, to prepare the way for Jehovah? Because the kingdom of heaven is here. This is probably pretty curious for the tempter. Maybe the devil's a little suspicious about this guy. And now this son of God is out there wandering around in this desolation, in the pitiful state of hunger for 40 days and nights, and the devil's probably thinking, wait a second. What is this? 
So the devil comes to him, realizing he's hungry, and says, If you are a son of God, you could always command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil says to Jesus twice, If you are a son of God. He doesn't use the definite article. He asks only if he is a son of God. It's a first-class conditional clause. In other words, I'm not saying that's who you are. You might be, but I need for you to prove to me what kind of a son you are. Note also, he doesn't say that Jesus should turn the stones into loaves because Jesus is hungry. But that Jesus should do it if you are a son of God. As if to imply only the Son of God can perform that kind of supernatural miracle and turn stones into bread. So then he would know for sure. So his temptation begins with, let's just see if indeed you are chosen as God's beloved Son. I'm ready for you to prove it to me. Let's just see how virtuous and steadfast and godly your character really is and what kind of a son you just might be. It's interesting to me that the temptation doesn't seem to come about because Jesus is troubled in his own thoughts about who he is either. We can hardly imagine Jesus thinking, boy, I hope I can hold up out here for 40 days without anything to eat. I wonder if I really am the Son of God. I wonder if it's true that I'm the Messiah. We can be certain that didn't happen. And so maybe it's even scarier for the devil than he's letting on. Is he approaching Jesus this way because he knows that if this really is the Son of God, the whole picture of what's going on here changes for the devil. If you are the Son of God, you're God's Messiah who has come to crush me. You've come to destroy my works and erect the kingdom of God among men, and I'm doomed if the scriptures are speaking of who you might be. And so the point of the temptation seems initially to be to satisfy the devil's curiosity. We don't really know when the devil knows this is Jesus, though. This is particularly curious because in the next chapter in the book of Mark, after the temptation... The demoniac called Legion, because he's filled with many demons, recognizes Jesus from afar and ran and worshipped him, it says. And he says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, a son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So very soon after the temptation, we know that demons recognize who Jesus is. So why does Satan act like he's not sure? I think the hope is that Jesus will break down under the test just like other men do. That he'll sin just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, doubting the veracity of God's word, and thus sin by denying that God's word is truthful. So I think the point of the temptation is for Jesus to prove to the devil what it's possible he might be the Son of God. And if he is, then there are a couple of ways he could prove that. 
So he's saying, Jesus, why don't, why don't you just say that these stones become bread? That would prove it. That would end your suffering from hunger, and I'd be certain who I'm dealing with. And then the text says that he entered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That phrase, it is written, is in the perfect tense, meaning it's completed action for all time. He's saying once it is written, it now stands forever as God's word and written. But what is it that stands forever? It's that all men shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But perhaps it's even stronger than that. Man will live by every arrangement of the divine will. You may remember that in John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Every word that God speaks is true. Every word that God has written is true. God's word is the truth for all men to depend on and live by for their entire lives. Therefore, nothing should shake our confidence in God because he is true. Nothing should shake Jesus' confidence in God either. How often in history has God provided food miraculously for people? Look what he did for Israel. For 40 years providing manna, literally the what is it? So the point of all these food miracles in the Old Testament is that though we hunger, whatever it is we suffer from, never to fall away from trusting in the Lord. It would be better to starve to death than to fall away from the Lord. Notice that Jesus doesn't get into any kind of discussion here like Adam and Eve did. Jesus doesn't consent to giving the devil some kind of sign that proves his worthiness to be the Son of God. And he certainly isn't going to obey the devil. If his father wanted him to have food, he also knew God would give it to him when it was necessary. And then the text continues, and it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God, you shall not put Jehovah to the test. This text the devil quotes from is Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. There's something kind of curious here that makes me wonder if the devil doesn't indeed cite Scripture for his own purpose. So there are 150 Psalms, and they're divided into five different groups. The 17 Psalms of group four, which this Psalm falls into, 90 to 106, are mostly written by anonymous authors, as is Psalm 91. And the specific Psalms are placed into one of these five categories based on two reasons. It depends on the general topic of that group, and depending on which book of the Pentateuch those Psalms are referring to. 
So the topics of the Psalms in group five are most closely associated with the book of Numbers. And those 17 Psalms make reference to the same general topic, Israel wandering around in the desert. It isn't a random quote of scripture. The devil quotes a psalm that talks about wandering around in the desert, and he's here tempting a half-starved Jesus who's wandering around in the desert. But quoting Psalm 91 has some other curious things as well. There's just this great assurance, even in the first two verses, about the reliable character of God. And the list of things that God protects us from in Psalm 91 is amazing. He protects us from unexpected snares in life, difficulties. He protects us from fatal calamities and pestilence. He protects us from terrors from your enemies and the extremes of desert climates. He protects you from deadly sickness. And what's interesting is that Psalm 91 talks about all of these troubles passing by the person that puts his trust in God as his refuge. And then the psalm closes by saying there are legions of angels who are given charge over those who trust in Yahweh. In fact, Psalm 91 says the angels are going to bear you up in their hands like a mother carries her child, protecting you so that you won't even dash your foot against one of those stones that you should be turning into bread. The psalm further says you are so protected that you could walk on a lion or a cobra and nothing would happen. So what do you say, Jesus? Give it a shot. Throw yourself down there with no worries at all. God's word says that your father is all about protecting you in every situation. And Jesus responds in the same way as he did before. He's not provoked. He's not indignant. He's not speaking to the devil as anything other than just one man among many men. Quoting scripture once again, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And the devil knows that the verses in Psalm 91 have nothing to do with Jesus. And the psalm certainly isn't advising anyone, let alone Jesus, to jump off some high place and throw yourself down headlong to see if God's word is really true. And so the absurdity of this challenge is anything but tempting for Jesus. And then the text continues in Matthew. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And now the devil flat out suggests that he's the divine, majestic, and glorious Lucifer, and that all that belongs to the Father is actually his, making himself to be equal with God, his creator. The tense of the verb indicates that the words the devil used were suggesting that Jesus prostrate himself just one single time. And for that, he would be granted all the kingdoms that the devil was showing him and all the glory that goes along with ruling in them. 
You know, it's hard to know the level of trickery going on here because Luke says he showed these kingdoms to Jesus in an instant of time. And so we ask, is there anywhere that anyone could go that would afford them a view of all the kingdoms of the world? And the answer is no. This is just another fantastic lie that was rejected by Jesus. And the text goes on and says, and then the devil says, for to me it has been delivered, and to whom I will, I give it. What an obscene, malicious, and arrogant liar the devil is. But then this gets us to the big question that we're asking, doesn't it? What's really going on here? The proposition is God has turned these kingdoms over to me, and I'm willing to turn them over to you if you will place yourself under me by a single act of worship. And then I will make you king over all these kingdoms. In other words, Jesus, I'm the shortcut you're looking for. Stop all this nonsense wandering around out here, starving yourself and suffering so. I don't know what long and bitter trial God has in store for you, but if you down to me, bow down to me in adoration one time, it's just one short step to the throne and your kingdom and your crown, and it's over. It's all yours. There's no need to face shame or agony or sacrifice yourself in a painful death as some kind of sacrificial lamb that's going to take away the sin of the world. It's not necessary. If you are who I think you might be, that's where your journey is headed, isn't it? Be smart, man. Instead of drinking that bitter cup, just a single moment's obedience, and I will make you king, you have arrived. You know what's kind of weird? is that Satan doesn't bow down before God in worship the way he wants Jesus to bow down to him. In fact, folks, Satan rules the kingdoms of this world as the enemy of God, as a rebel against God, as someone who has illegally seized the kingdoms of this world. And then the text says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Be gone, Satan. To offer worship to any other being is the abomination of idolatry. And Luke says the devil did more than simply left him. Luke says, now when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. And then the angels that were promised in Psalm 91 begin to minister to Jesus in God's perfect timing. Let me leave you with four reminders this morning. I'm a musician, and it's hard for me not to think about this passage without thinking about a psalm a song that Bob Dylan wrote, where he said, everyone's going to serve someone, either the devil or the Lord. The name of the song is, you got to serve somebody. I'll just give you verse four in the chorus. You may be a construction, 
construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns, you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord, you might even own banks. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Folks, listen, multitudes of people desire to be saved from hell who are quite unwilling to be saved from their sin. I pray that none of you listening to me today will ever find a reason to serve anyone other than the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second reminder is let me give you a fuller biblical reminder as to who this being is behind the temptation. Remember that the devil has an insatiable desire to bring men to ruin. That has been his desire since he fell from his rightful place before the creation of men. For the devil, hell and destruction are never full because he rages against men and incites faithless men to rage against Christians. The devil is the angel of the bottomless pit, the destroying one. He is the New Testament's terminator. He is Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, also known as the Lord of Dung. He is the prince of all the fallen devils and demons. He is Belial, the embodiment of all that is vile and worthless. And remarkably, some men actually choose to serve the devil. He is the spirit that is working in the children of disobedience to keep them blinded from the truth of the gospel. The devil is the constant enemy of God, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of the divine kingdom and of the followers of Christ and of everything that is true and good. He incites the faithless to rage against Christians. He deceives men by turning them from God to serve himself. He takes men captive to do his will and he deceives nations. Beware. The third reminder comes in Mark chapter 8. You'll remember that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, well, John the Baptist and Others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, the scriptures say. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Anything that hinders Jesus from going to the cross is the work of Satan. And I think that's what's going on out here in the desert. Jesus repeats over and over again during his ministry that he's going to be crucified. 
That's the final stop in his ministry. And Satan knows that the death and resurrection of Jesus would result in Satan's final and ultimate defeat. Peter couldn't tolerate for a moment the idea of Jesus suffering and dying. And Satan's temptation was trying to turn Jesus away from the path of suffering and sacrifice. And so he said, if you are the Son of God, what are you doing out here in the desert suffering from hunger? Work a few miracles and just turn these stones into bread. If the scriptures are true, then God wouldn't even let you strike your foot against a stone. God will see to it that nothing bad happens to you. So throw yourself down there and show all of your followers what wonders you're capable of performing. I don't know why the king of the Jews has to wait to get crowned king by wandering around the desert first. Get on with it. Bow down to me one time and I'll give you all these kingdoms instantly. The waiting is over. I think the point of all these temptations is if you are the son of God, you don't need to walk the path of suffering and waiting and sacrifice and death. Use your power to legitimately escape suffering. If you're the son of God, you have the right to reign right now and I can help you do it. But whatever you do, don't go to the cross. Folks, listen. Every temptation of Satan is to the child of God in reality a trial of the genuineness of our faith. Let me end by giving you a quote from J.C. Ryle. He said, a man who is born again is careful of his own soul. He tries not only to avoid sin, but also to avoid everything that may lead to it. He is careful about the company he keeps. He is careful about the use of his time. His chief desire is to spend it profitably. He desires to live like a soldier in an enemy country, to wear his armor continually, and to be prepared for temptation, never to be caught off guard. He is diligent to be a watchful, humble, and prayerful, prayerful person. And I pray for each of those things for us this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the powerful reminder of who Jesus is. How you have prepared him to be the glorious king. How you led him his entire life to accomplish your will. To die for us who believe in him, to take away the sin of the world. Father, what majesty Jesus owns, we have yet to behold. But we're thankful that what you have recorded in your word shows us that there is no one else like Jesus, no one else worthy of our serving. And so, Father, we thank you for the time this morning. Be a blessing to us as we continue to worship. And may your name be praised in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.